Germany's social market economy combined free markets with a strong welfare state. It becomes the social democratic party. Yes, we can. Education, education, and education. Hello and welcome to the Centre Think Tanks podcast, The Centrist Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will Barber-Taylor, and in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Melissa Benn, a campaigner, uh, researcher, educationalist and journalist. Welcome to the podcast, Melissa. Hi, Will. Thank you very much for having me, as I was always taught to say when I was younger. (laughs) <laughs> well, it is a delight to have you on. You're very welcome to be on the podcast. Um, the first question that I'd like to ask is, why do you think the creation of the comprehensive system had such an impact on education in the UK? Well, I think it was. Uh, it was a long moment in that the first comprehensive schools go back. I think there were even experiments pre-war but the main movement towards comprehensive education was in the mid 60s onwards and it was just an incredibly important moment in our society because it moved us away from it it wanted to move us away from an incredibly hierarchical system there had always been the big public schools and the minor public schools Um, But post-war, the 1944 Education Act brought in a three-tier distinction within the local authorities, which were grammar schools, the technical schools, which never really took off, and secondary moderns. And they were, you were supposedly, entrance to them was determined by your intelligence, although the research on which that was based was very flawed. And what what that did was signal to most children that they were failures by the age of 11. Um, We have to acknowledge that there were some people from disadvantaged, poor, lower middle class backgrounds for whom the grammar schools propelled them right to the top of elite society, to Oxford and Cambridge, where they then competed with the children of the very rich who'd gone to public schools. But on the whole, it was a system grounded on rejection and rather than selection. And From 1944 onwards, the next 20 years, public opinion began to turn against this as a system for a modern democratic um, society. And Peter Mandler, the Cambridge academic, has written, uh, recently written quite an interesting study showing how parents in the post-war welfare state were told they could have housing and welfare and, and all sorts of supports by society, but education was limited by this 11 plus. So it it was incredibly important, but it's also important to say it's been a really contested revolution. You know, revolution is a strong word, but it was really a social revolution and it has been contested ever since, in the 50 years since. Hmm. Do you think that the way that we view the comprehensive system, I mean, you mentioned there the way that it was viewed um, in relation to uh, grammar schools and, and, the, and the public school system. Do you think that the way that we view the comprehensive system has been somewhat influenced by um, media depictions of comprehensives? And that has, in, in a way, informed the way that um, people in general, or, or maybe um, members of the, the, the public in particular, 
think of them when, when, when they think of uh, comprehensive schools in comparison to, to other forms of education? Yes, that, that, that's a wonderfully moderately phrased question, as I would expect from something called the Centuries podcast. <laughs> and I think my answer to that, to be really truthful, is that very few schools are perfect institutions. Um, they're human institutions, and most schools have problems and difficulties and have failed at some point or another. So I would be lying if I said that all comprehensive schools have been in any way perfect in the last 50 years. But I, t I put that proposition to you and hold it up. And if you can see me, you see I'm holding up my hand. On the other hand, I would talk about pretty clearly established hostility, as I mentioned a minute ago, to the comprehensive reforms, the comprehensive ideal. And I have over the years done, looked at, press coverage of comprehensive education and it the sort of words that are used are um oh gosh I'm trying to remember the words that are used about them but that they are represented as failures as social experiments social engineering as if private schools aren't the most the impeccable example of social engineering but from a different point of view getting the rich to be educated alone grammars are a form of social engineering on supposedly on the basis of iq but comprehensives have been blasted by people who just do not like the idea or don't believe in the idea that you can educate all young people together and there has remained in this country a very firm and devoted band of people who believe in the grammar school system. And when Theresa May became prime minister in 2016, she said, I'm going to expand it uh, because she was a great believer in it. And in fact, numbers at grammar schools have slowly expanded through various more subtle means through creating annexes or just increasing the numbers that go to particular grammar schools in every year. So it's still very much with us, even though it's a, a, a minority form of education. But yes, there are many people who just do not like the idea that children should be educated together. And I think we have to say, when talking about that, that although it's often, and certainly in the past, used to be based on the notion that they were just clever children and not clever children, and you ought to let the two be, um, educated separately. You won't find those arguments so much anymore. It's now the arguments are around parental choice. And as Britain has become a more unequal society, I think a lot of the fears around comprehensives are actually about the fear of children from very poor backgrounds being educated with those from more aspirant, affluent backgrounds. Mm. There's nothing that parents can be more afraid of than downward social mobility and they fear their children being educated with those who haven't got an ambition or a plan to succeed. And that's a very important layer in the debate around comprehensives. Do you think then that um, the different forms of education that are available in, in some ways create um, a, a, a greater imbalance as, as you mentioned there between people who perhaps are 
you know, of a sort of like more uh, affluent background and want their their, their children to um, mix, as you suggest, with people from perhaps similar um, backgrounds who who they, they think have got uh, similar aspirations for their children. Do you think that creates a sort of an internal divide in the, in, in the education system wherein we're not really looking at how children uh, can be best educated and what can actually be best for the children, but we're focusing more on some of the irrational fears of their parents in, in, in terms of, of their children's education? Um, I, I don't think anybody would talk about it. I don't think any politician would talk about a plan to pander to parents' irrationality. I think, mm. I think the difficulty is that education is often talked about in terms other than it really operates in, if you see what mm. I mean. Yes, yes. I mean, we've always had a hierarchical system, and we still do. In the old days, it was based more on, in an age of deference, based more on an idea that the rich should be educated separately and that a chunk of the clever lower and middle class should be allowed to enter that world and that the rest should just get what they're given. But we live in a democratic age where you can't, as I said before, you can't talk like that. And yet we still have a hierarchical system. So it's um, it's now around, as I said, parental choice, the idea that parents should not take the school that they're given, but should be allowed to choose a school. And it's based around school admissions, which means schools are given all sorts of freedoms that are inadequately overseen to choose the parents that they want to create a more um, advantageous mix. And of course, the wealthy can still educate themselves separately. But I think in all of this, we mustn't get too pessimistic, because although all of that is true, we also have to recognise that there are many examples of tremendously successful all in schools and where they've been allowed to flourish and where they've been supported by either local authorities or largely local authorities, but also some in an age of multi-academy trust, some that, that operate successful comprehensive schools, although they're not you know, run by the state, they work tremendously well. And one, one of the um, studies that we did at Comprehensive Future, which I chaired for a few years, was to take two very similar counties, a tale of two counties, and we took Buckinghamshire, which has a highly selective system, and Hampshire, which has a very successful comprehensive system. They're quite similar. They're both conservative counties. They have a similar profile. And it showed that a comprehensive system can work very, very well. Similarly, in London, you do have these excellent comprehensives, and you have them all over the country, where you really do have all ability entrance, you really do have a mix of ethnic and social background, and they and they work very well. And I think that's what we should concentrate on, even while recognising that it's still a long haul to let that be our system in general. Mm. And you, you mentioned your time there as um, chair of Comprehensive Future. I, I just wondered if you could um, explain how you uh, initially got involved with um, Comprehensive Future uh, and, 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 and what it was like um, being the chair. Mm, well, the, how I got involved is a is a longer story. In that, I suppose the reason I got involved in education campaigning goes back quite a way. In that, I myself was. Um, 
part of a pioneer generation and really a pioneer family in a way, in that I, I was going to say was, I still am, I suppose, the daughter of somebody who was a, a, a fairly well-known Labour politician of the, of the 60s, 70s and 80s. And um, he, my father, Tony Benn, had been educated privately. My mother, Caroline Benn, who an American, had been educated privately. But uh, when we first started, uh, myself and my three brothers, we were all educated privately. And then the comprehensive movement began and comprehensive schools began to open up. And there was a pioneer comprehensive opened up near to us. And my parents said, we believe in this system, therefore we're going to send our children there. And it, it, it's hard to understand the um, ill at that that created, both within our social world and, and in a wider sense. Um, and so that set me on, you know, maybe you could say I was a guinea pig in a way, but that, that particular experience of going to a comprehensive when I was really, um, you know, the English class system would have really sent me along another route. Mm -hmm has uh, changed my view of, and way of thinking about everything. And then when I became a parent, I wanted my children to go to a, a local school as I had because I really enjoyed my education. And that set me off thinking about the system as it existed in the Blair era. Mm. And that was made, made me distrustful of parental choice. So I got involved in campaigning. I've written four books, published four books around educational themes. And then I thought I'd better put my... Uh, campaigning money where my writer's mouth is is that the right phrase <laughs> my metaphors and Fiona Miller who is a friend of mine and a fellow campaigner had been chair of comprehensive future she stepped down and I thought I really ought to step up to the plate and 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 do something and it just happened that I became chair at the time that Theresa May was um well, soon after she wanted to expand grammars. So I was really pitched into a, a, a national battle. And um, yeah, that was interesting. That was interesting. But I've also, I'm also involved in quite a few campaigns. It becomes a kind of, um, I think when one has a passion for a subject mm. and education is definitely one of them, uh, it's, it's, it can be all consuming. Or it can be it can be very consuming. I do do other things. I do do other things. In terms of syllabuses, because that's something that is is often discussed greatly in terms of the education system, is the kind of syllabus that um, children are taught and how balanced it is between uh, the arts and, and, and the sciences, etc. What do you think is the key? To having a well balanced syllabus, do you do you do you think it's do you think do you think it's something that can be in 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 fact written down as a particular formula, or do you think it depends on the particular uh, child or the particular educational establishment that they're attending? Well, um, first of all, it's interesting because you're obviously quite young. I can see you on Zoom, and, and <laughs> syllabus is a word that was really much more prevalent. In a, in a previous generation, because now everyone talks about curriculum. And so uh, my feeling is that all schools should provide a broad and balanced curriculum. I, I, that's, that's a positive statement. As a negative answer to your question, I definitely don't think 
that politicians should prescribe or proscribe mm-hmm. subjects from on high, as did happen in the coalition era, where Michael Gove, who in many ways was a very interesting minister and certainly the most proactive and provocative Secretary of State for Education I think we've ever had. But he came in and decided that there was not enough chunky, substantive um, material in uh, the curriculum and was involved with various other experts in, in rewriting it. And I just don't think you can do that from on high. I mean, my take on what Michael Gove did was that really he wanted state schools to be more like the private school that he had attended and many conservatives have attended. And he, you know, what was that phrase? The soft bigotry of low expectations. And the argument was quite powerful because what it was saying was that, that, that most of the population and then the poor had been let down by a too loose and unchallenging curriculum. And if that had been true and where where it was true, that wasn't good enough. But I I think that although you should have general, you know, subjects that that everybody in the the country should learn more or less the same thing in more or less the same stages, it should really be left to particular schools or areas or those who know the children that they're dealing with to decide how and in what way um, that education should be taken forward. Um, I think that's really, really important. And I think it's really important because it can create, in fact, a more challenging and deep and rich learning experience. Whereas I think now it's pretty well agreed that one of the faults of our system is that it's very rigid mm. and and dull and leaves a lot of young people behind and teachers feel exhausted by it. And it's not, it's not a meaningful and enjoyable experience as teaching and learning should be. Something has definitely gone awry and needs to be changed. Mm. And of course, our educational system is is not the only one that exists in the world. There are different educational systems in in, in different countries. And I I just wondered whether there was one in another um, nation that you thought worked better than the British system in in, in some ways. And if if, if there is one that you think works better than the British system, is there anything from that system that you think we could copy or or replicate in, in Britain? Well, I, I, I'm not an expert, but I've read a bit about other systems. And there's a very interesting book by a woman called Lucy Cree, Crean called Cleverlands, where she went and looked at the five top performing systems in the world. And what's so fascinating about that is very, you know, she, she made it absolutely clear that all systems reflect and intensify or challenge the culture from which they emerge. And I think we have to recognise that every nation has its own very particular history and culture and so on. And you can't just transplant one thing from another. Mm. But there were key elements in what she uh, discovered about their success. For instance, uh, children starting school later and the provision of early education that, that to a strict Tory point of view might look rather like play mm. but that in fact it it helped young young people it helped children to learn about 
for the social elements of education, to learn about others, um, to come to, to learning through enjoyment rather than being hit over the head with fronted adverbials, which even our own current Minister of Education has said he doesn't know what a fronted adverbial is, um, which is in the primary school curriculum. So that was one element um, that, that systems that were more successful delayed selection and tracking, which is, I suppose, an international word for streaming till much later, that systems that were successful had were well-resourced, that systems were, that were successful had a broad and balanced curriculum, um, and, uh, and systems that are more successful give teachers more time to think about what they're learning, more control over what they're learning, more decisions over what they're learning, and less time in the classroom so that they're less tired and can do more thinking about their approaches. So those are all things that I think our system could benefit from. And unfortunately, we seem to have gone in a different direction. Our, our early years is an absolute mess. It's expensive, it's a form of warehousing, Parents can't afford it. The pay for those who are looking after our children is some of the lowest in the public sector. That's just that's just crazy. Yeah. And it means that young it means that children start school without the necessary grounding, and they start school too young because school is a way of parents being able to go out to work. So we, we start in the wrong way, and then I think we carry on in a lot of wrong ways. Do you think that the result of the pandemic may change the approach that we'll see to the education system? Or do you think that it's simply going to be a case of that, well, it's exposed massive failings, we're just going to patch them up and, uh, and, and hope for the best? Yeah, well, you know, that's a really interesting question. I think at the beginning of the pandemic, particularly in that spring, when we were coming out every week and clapping for the NHS and everyone was in shock. There was a sense of this being akin to wartime and that change would have to come. And this was a beverage report moment. You know, the beverage report mm. came out in 42 and led to the post-1940 uh, for Education Act, as well as many other things. And, you know, it hasn't doesn't look like it's going to work out like that. It looks like we're more... Uh, we haven't even patched up very well. Well, you talk about patch up, catch up is still a contentious thing. But Sir Kevin Collins, who was appointed to oversee a catch-up programme, resigned because the money was simply inadequate. Um, the government oversaw the pandemic, giving enormous amounts of money to track and trace systems that didn't work and not giving money to things that, 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 that should work. I do think the pandemic exposed the, the really important relationship between family background and education, which anyone in education who worked in education or thought about it seriously knew and therefore realised that often it isn't schools doing a bad job, but this is a very complicated picture and that schools in disadvantaged areas need more resources because children don't have all the things at home that affluent children just take for granted. But, um, you know, it's also a bigger, it's a bigger question. I... <laughs> I, I look at the last 10, 12 years of Conservative government and I see a lot of our public institutions being worn down by austerity, um, a lack of competence, um, being bungled by this 
by this government. I mean, it, it's not just education. It's the NHS is always on a precipice. The Metropolitan Police are in crisis. Um, I, I really worry about what's happening to our public services. So, no, I don't feel particularly optimistic about what will happen to education. I mean, what I do notice is that secondary education seems to be ticking over more successfully than a lot of other public sector areas. Um, but I think that's down to the incredible hard work of head teachers and teachers throughout this period. And I've been following that in my journalism and talking to them all, and they have put in the most heroic effort. So I hope that they will keep pushing for more resources and a, a better system overall. Absolutely. Um, we're coming towards the end of the podcast. It's been great to have you on the podcast, Melissa, and I have one final question for you. Um, we've obviously <laughs> been talking about education and the educational system, but one thing that we haven't discussed are school meals. So I just wondered if you could pick one school meal that you could have as a perfect school meal, whether for yourself or for pupils across Britain, what sort of school meal would you pick? As, well, as I certainly wouldn't meal? pick the school meals that I used to have, those horrible <laughs> potatoes. Do you remember those um, in those silver things and you get a thing of potato? I mean, on school meals, thanks to lots of things, our understanding about nutrition, individuals like Jamie Oliver and so on, we, we do have a better idea of what a school meal would look mm. like. I'm a vegetarian, so I guess I would choose a school meal that presented vegetables in the most delicious way. I don't know, a vegetable, <laughs> las a vegetable lasagna with a really nice salad next to it. And I think lots of um, children these days would, would appreciate that. Um, I would keep all uh, fast food, snack food, all those things that are laden down with sugar and salt and are creating an obesity and health crisis in our population and setting it up for future adults by sort of selling it to children, keep all of that out of schools. Um, so, yeah. I think I think vegetable lasagna and a nice salad is is my best offer. What? How do you think that sounds? I think that sounds great. It's something that I think I would have I would have appreciated certainly. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you once again for coming on the podcast, Melissa. If people want to find out more about you and your work, where should they go to find out more? About I do you? actually have a website and I think you just put in melissaben.com and that, as I always say, that tells you far more about me than you'll ever want to know, but you can just go and select the different parts about uh, my books, um, my campaigning work or events that I've done or are coming up. So that's the place to start. Fantastic. Thank you once again for coming on the podcast. Pleasure.